The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the fifth Sunday of Epiphany, and in this season, we're considering Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we're seeking by it to hopefully see more clearly who he is and the life that he came in order to offer and to impart. And today, we come to what's probably the most well-known portion of that sermon, what we call now the Sermon on the Mount, or rather, the Lord's Prayer in this sermon. And it's the very central part of the sermon. There are 53 verses before it, 49 after it. And though it's very brief, only five verses, it can transform your life, even beginning today. You may have been following this story over the past week. There are authorities in Australia that have been looking for and finally found a tiny little capsule of cesium. Do you know what this is, cesium? It's a radioactive material that's used especially in mining, especially in radiation gauges. And apparently this tiny eight millimeter by six millimeter capsule fell off a truck out of a supposedly secure container somewhere along a 900-mile stretch of desert highway, and they couldn't find it, which is concerning because despite its small size, it possesses immense power. It'll produce radiation burns all over your body if you touch it, or if you're just within a few feet of it, it's like receiving the radiation exposure of 20 x-rays immediately, and if it gets into the water supply or the food supply, it can cause not only radiation poisoning, but cancer, as well as death, because gamma rays are involved. 
Didn't realize that gamma rays were a real thing. I thought it was just Superman in comics, but apparently it's a real thing. And as I was reading about this, I thought somebody got fired. Somebody lost their job over this because they didn't appreciate the transformative yet destructive power of something so small. And we shouldn't make the same mistake with the Lord's Prayer. Because even though it's very small and very brief, it has transformative power that deserves our appreciation. And it also answers the question, how do we pray? Jesus answers that very question for us. And so two points this morning to try and unlock his answer. Number one, the error. Number two, the petitions. First of all, the error. The error here is an error of intention. The first thing that we need to notice is what precedes this prayer here in our passage, because um, it seems to prompt what Jesus says in the very articulation of the prayer, because there in verse nine, if you notice, he says, pray then like this. In other words, based upon what I just said in verses one through eight, pray this way. This is how you should pray. In verses one through eight, what they do is they offer two errors that demonstrate this intention that if it's behind our prayer, the prayer that we offer won't have the transformative power that we need. And these errors Jesus mentions here are being made by the Jewish religious leaders of his day. He's talking to his disciples, but he's looking at these Jewish religious leaders and he's telling his disciples, don't be like them in how they give money to the poor and in how they pray. And notice he doesn't say, don't be like them because they don't give to the poor and they don't pray. They did. So it wasn't the action that they were doing that was the problem. The problem was the intention, the motivation, or the attitude behind it. For Jesus, everything hinges upon why you do something. And the why that they were doing something was deadly to them. And he doesn't want to be deadly to his disciples. And so why were these religious leaders giving to the poor according to verses 2 through 4? Why were they praying as they prayed in verses five through eight? The answer is in verse one, where Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Righteousness meaning the life that is in accord with who God is, the life that is in line with him and fitting with him and his character as he is revealed in the scriptures and what it means to be human, a life that is right and good and true holy even, and everything that he's outlined in his word, especially chapter five. Chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount is really Jesus saying, this is how you should now live that you believe in and follow after me. This is how you should live. In chapter six, it transitions into the why. And so he says here about the intention behind this living, beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them or noticed by them. The religious leaders apparently gave money and prayed in public, first of all, in order to gain a reputation, to gain some sort of image with other people, an image of approval, of admiration, or even praise, which is the word that Jesus uses in verse two. But in verse one, there's this, this simple word seen. Seems very innocuous to us, but it's an important word. Because in Greek, it's this word theonomai, uh, from which we get our English word theater. And it means to gaze upon something as if it's a spectacle something that we can't not look at, like we do when we see a car accident. What happens when we see a car accident? Even if it's not impeding traffic, what do all of us do? All of us slow down in order that we can see and look as long as we possibly can at this car accident. People slow down. I start to say bad words. Alyssa looks at me, but we slow down, all of us, because we want to see and to gaze upon this spectacle for as long as we can. It's like being on stage. Jesus says, don't theaterize yourself. And yes, I made up that word, but you get it. Don't 
theaterize yourself. Don't be, don't turn yourself into some sort of one person sideshow of religious performance or any other form of performance that it may be. Don't do this. Don't do anything so simply that people will applaud you. Friends, he's wanting to liberate us from this crushing burden of having to be impressive to anyone, especially and even ourselves. That's why he says what he does in verse three, when he talks about the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing. He says we're to do things like give to the poor for believers in Christ or to pray, but we're to do them with some sort of internal unconsciousness and an awareness, an unawareness of not only the gaze of other people, but even our own internal gaze. So much so, so secret, as secret as possible that it's like one piece of your body, one part of your body operating and the other one doesn't even realize it. And so do you know what that's like? Do you know what it's like to have an internal unconsciousness or do you know the crushing burden of feeling as though you have to be a spectacle or spectacular or extraordinary? In my copy of Frederick Dale Bruner's Matthew commentary, which is one of my favorite commentaries, in the top right-hand corner on the page that speaks about this very verse, I've written one sentence. And it's a sentence, it's not wrong to not be extraordinary. And it's in quotation marks because I didn't say it. A friend of mine said it. A friend of mine who's very dear to me, important to me, a man who's been a mentor in my life, and many of you probably know him, his name is Skip Ryan. And Skip went to Harvard, which is not Oklahoma State, but Oklahoma State's kind of the Harvard of North Central Oklahoma. <laughs> and then he went on to seminary, and then he planted a very well-known, thriving church in Charlottesville, Virginia. And then he became the first and founding pastor of a very small church in Dallas. Do y'all know it? PCPC, Park Cities Presbyterian Church. It's one of the largest churches in our denomination, probably one of the wealthiest churches anywhere in the world, I would argue. 5,000 members, I don't know what it is, probably a $20 million budget or so. They just finished a $50 million capital campaign. It's a beautiful church, beautiful building, beautiful, powerful people. I try to steal as many pastors and staff members as possible from them. I've been doing a pretty good job of it lately. But it's an impressive, extraordinary church on so many levels. And Barbara, Skip's wife, she will tell you that Skip felt that from the moment that he got there. He felt how impressive and important the church was. So much so that Barbara will say that the Skip that she knew in Charlottesville never got off the plane in Dallas. He was so concerned with being a theater to others. So much so that as he tells his own story, he became an addict, but first a hypocrite. And Jesus uses this word hypocrite in verse 2. In the ancient world and in classical Greece, a hypocritus was first and foremost an orator. Some of them got paid to speak. Then before too long, they began to use the word for actors on stage. And then eventually they used it figuratively of anyone who treated the world as a stage. If someone would lay aside their true identity or their true character and put on a false self like an actor on stage to perform a role, they spoke of it as a hypocrite. And so too do we, still to this day. And that's what Skip did. He hurt his back. And then he had surgery on his back. The surgery didn't help so much. And so then he began taking pain pills during what we now know to be the opioid crisis. And he became addicted to them. And he justified his continued and secret use of them because he had to keep going. He had to keep going to, for the sake of this ministry and this impressive church. And then he began manipulating doctors in his congregation to write him multiple scripts. Then before too long, as you would imagine, even though he was preaching and leading and being very successful and very fruitful in everything that he did, they began to figure out what was going on. And so now he's no longer in ministry. He's trying to stay sober and is sober. But it was after his mask was pulled off 
right after I became senior pastor here, that he came to me, again, still my mentor, and told me with more seriousness than I've ever had anyone probably say anything to me, Tim, it's not wrong to not be extraordinary. Because that was the errant internal intention that drove him for so long. And it's exactly what Jesus is speaking of here. And so friends, listen to me real quick. We need to know that there is an inextricable connection between people and God and how we relate to both of them. We can't relate to people one way and think that we're relating to God in another. The same intention will govern both. So if we feel or we think or we act as though we have to perform exceptionally in some sort of spectacular way for other people in order to gain their love and approval and acceptance, and we drive ourselves and we drive ourselves and we beat ourselves like a rider on a horse that's beating that horse into the ground. And if we're willing to theaterize the very best parts of our lives while hiding all the worst parts of our lives, and if we do that with others, then deep down, we need to know that's also the way that we relate to God and think of him. We think of him as a theater going God. And we are those that have to do everything we possibly can to somehow gain his applause and his approval. And eventually that will crush you. It will crush you just like it did Skip. And you too will become a hypocrite. And and worse than all of that, it will also deceive you and blind you to the wonders and the beauties of who God actually is, as well as the life-transforming grace that alone can be the foundation for your relationship with him and the source of anything that's real and true life. Case in point, what name does Jesus use in verse nine to begin the Lord's prayer? What's the first word or title or name that he gives? He says, father. He doesn't say creator, though God is certainly a creator. He's your creator and and he owns everything and you and every part of you all the way down to the very breath that you breathe. He also doesn't say king. It's not because God's not a king. He is a king. He has every right to judge and to rule over your life, every word you speak, every action that you take. But he uses the word father. Because to be a Christian means to first and foremost know God as Father. And that means that the power that he has over you as a creator and the rule that he has over you as a king, it's always gentle toward you and kind toward you. And it means that you have a relationship with him, not because you deserved it or earned it or gained some sort of applause from performance that, that you now deserve it, but rather because of his grace. Any child in any family, whether through adoption or biology, if they're in that family, it's not because of them. It's not because that they did it or deserved it or some right action or right decision. It's because of the action and the decision, the prevenient love of those parents. And the same is true of God. You remember the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan? Remember how it ends? Matt Damon's character is old and Tom Hanks' character, who's Captain Miller, has been dead for a number of years, all the way back since World War II. Uh, he's, he's now dead and, and Private Ryan's an old man and he's thinking back to his final conversation with Captain Miller. And you remember the last thing that Captain Miller says to Private Ryan as he lays there dying? Remember what he says? Earn it. Earn it. And then years later, Private Ryan's an old man. He turns to his elderly wife and he says, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I'm a good man because he's being crushed by what has governed his life, which has been this motivation and this drive to prove himself, to prove that his performance of life was enough to deserve these soldiers' deaths. Same way with the Jewish religious leaders. It's why they gave money. It's why they prayed in public. And Jesus says, no, my followers can only relate to me and to my father through grace. That's it. 
And so do you, do you relate to God through grace or do you theaterize yourself before God and before others? Because again, friends, in the end, if you do, it will crush you. And you also never pray the way that Jesus directs us to pray here. But if you do, if you, if you know the grace of God in Christ, you can pray the way that Jesus directs us. So what does he say? What does he tell us to do? Well, six petitions here. So point to the petitions. There are six and they're quite short. The whole prayer is only 51 words total, exactly the opposite of what Jesus critiques others of in verse seven, where he says they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Again, that's a theaterizing approach to God. And in verse eight, Jesus says, don't be like them because they think that, that they'll be heard because of all the, the words that they say. He says, don't think about God that way. Don't pray that way. Martin Luther said that we should pray like this. He said three things. He said prayer should be brief, frequent, and earnest. So just 51 words and that's it. And together, they're not so much a prescription of exactly what to pray, but more so a paradigm of how to pray. And these six petitions are these. First of all, there's, there's three about God and there's three about us. And it's pretty hard to miss that Jesus doesn't begin with us, though we often, let's be honest, we begin with us and our needs and what we need. Jesus doesn't let us get to ourselves until the prayer is halfway over. He begins with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do you know what it means to hallow? You say the word every week in church. You know what it means? It means to make holy. It's just the verb form of that word. It means to set something aside from common use to unique use and to special status. The closest synonym to the word holy is probably the word glory, which in Hebrew is the word kavod. I've told you this before, but it's an onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it means. Kavod, it sounds heavy. That's what it means. It means heavy or weighty or significant or important. And so the first thing that Jesus tells us to ask God is to ask God that he would make himself more central, more important, more weighty in our life than anything else in our life. Anything at all, because that's our greatest need. Our most essential need is to know and to feel the primal weightiness of God. And so do you, because if you don't, until God has his rightful deserving weight in your life, everything else will seem inordinately and overly heavy and large and looming over you, even little things. You'll never know stability. You'll be tossed this way and that way by this supposedly massive issue or this supposedly overwhelming problem or, or this great and, and, and insurmountable problem. And they're little things little things. Or you'll be puffed up with all this great pride because of these supposedly great successes that you've had. And they're really not that big of a deal. You think that they're a big deal, but nobody else does. You can't understand why people don't applaud you. You're offended that they don't think that what you're doing is such a big deal. But you know why they don't think it's a big deal? Because they have something else in their life that's far more hallowed than you and you don't. And so ask God to hallow his name in your heart and life. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Help us to hallow your name. He doesn't say that. He says, God, hallow your name. So pray that. Ask him to impress upon you his true weightiness. If you dare, because it's a very courageous prayer to pray something like that. Really what this first petition is doing, along with these other two Godward petitions, those about his kingdom, and then also about his will, is adoring or praising God. And that's really where prayer must begin. And I don't want to overstate things in some sort of hyperbolic way, though that's what my wife says that I do all the time. And maybe she's right. It's probably what I do. But I do think that not only is this where prayer has to begin, but this is the most important part of prayer. 
But the most important part of prayer is adoring him. It's not asking, it's adoring. It's telling him and repeating to him how good he is and how faithful he is and how strong and how kind and how merciful and how slow to anger and how abounding with loving kindness that he is. That's the most important part of prayer. And now some of you who are the more cynical types, and I know you're there, some of you, the more cynical types, you may be thinking, is God really that insecure? Is he that self-centered and shallow that he needs us to tell him how great he is? No. Number one, no. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything from me or from any of us. And number two, you need to read C.S. Lewis's essay, The Problem of Praise in the Psalms, because this was one of the last obstacles that was preventing him from becoming a Christian. And finally, he got over that obstacle. And he did when he realized, as he wrote in that essay, the world rings with praise. Everyone and everything, he says, can't help but acknowledging what is best and most beautiful and most important in their life. We can't not adore something. We can't not appraise something. And we will. And whatever it is, whatever we talk about most, whatever we focus upon most, whatever we share most and most readily with others, that is what is most hallowed in our heart. That's what's most weightiest in our life. And that's why we need to praise God. It's not because he needs our praises. It's not because he somehow desperately or pathetically wants our praises. It's because we need to praise him in order to be well, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, physically, intellectually, even we need to praise him. Now, others of you aren't cynical, but you're practical. And you're wondering, okay, how in the world could praising or adoring God be more important than asking him for what I need or even what other people need? And I want you to know that here's how and why there's nothing more practical than to praise God. Do you know what you really need? What you and me and all of us really, truly need? We need to have our souls plunged into the fullness of who God is until our hearts are captivated and amazed by him. And asking him for stuff won't do it. But telling him over and over again who he is and what he's like, it can. For example, let's say that you say that you believe in God. And I would imagine that most of you probably at least admit that. And maybe even you say that you believe that God loves you. And maybe even like checking a box on a quiz or something, you would say, yes, and I also believe that God is the most important thing in the world and and the most important thing in my life. But then what happens when rejection comes? When someone that you really care about rejects you, maybe a lover or maybe even a spouse, they show up one day and they say, I'm done. I want a divorce. Or maybe there's rejection by a coach or by a university or by a friend or a group of friends or even an employer or a potential employer and you needed that job. That job was going to save you financially. It was going to save you vocationally. Or that rejection by that banker who was going to give you that loan that was going to save your finances. And that failure or that rejection comes and you're devastated and you fall apart. I've known men who've committed suicides because they didn't get the right loan and they couldn't face their wife and they couldn't face their friends. And so you say you believe in God. You say you believe that that he loves you and that he's even the most important thing in the world. But then when you find and experience this rejection or failure, you're wrecked. You completely go to pieces. And why? Because God and his love isn't very real to your heart. He's an abstraction to you. This past week in the ice storm, the very largest live oak in our backyard fell, toppled over from the very base 
pulled up from the roots. It was massive, it was beautiful, massive, probably four, four and a half feet wide diameter at its base, 40 at least feet tall, 80 foot canopy probably. It was majestic. I would have said it's the most secure and sturdy tree in all of our yard, but it fell because the roots snapped. None of the limbs broke. The roots snapped. The ice became too thick and heavy on the limbs. They held, but the roots didn't. And roots grow in private. They extend and grow strong secretly, just like Jesus's emphasis here. And they're what people see, but they're what gives the tree life and stability. They're what makes the tree stand. Whatever happens above the surface happens above the surface, but the tree will stand if the roots are deep and strong. And that live oak failed because its roots failed. And adoration or praise, more so than any other part of prayer, it extends the roots of our souls deep down into the very life and the very love of God. It plunges us and our souls to the very reality of who we is as we speak words of love and adoration to him, about him. And he becomes more and more and more real to our hearts and far less of an abstraction. And then our hearts become sturdy and then our lives are able to stand. And that's why before you even ask for your daily bread, which is everything that you need, or before you ask for forgiveness, or before you ask for protection from the evil one, which is the way that this should be translated. Do not let us be led into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Before we ask for any of that, Jesus calls on us to adore God. Because listen, here's where I am. Because number one petition, if we adore him, we will, number two, long for his rule in our life. We'll long for him and his word to tell us this is how you should live. This is what you should believe. This is how you're to think. And if we adore him, the number three petition will accept his will, regardless of what his will may be. Even if we can't delight in it, we will endure it because he and his name and his very life are more hallowed in our hearts than our circumstances. And if we adore him, the number four, we'll trust him for our bread, for what we need, and we won't curse him for what we aren't given that we want. And number five, we'll forgive others if we adore him because what will captivate our hearts more than anything else is the very grace of God to us that has led him to forgive us and we will forgive others. And finally, if we adore him, we'll resist and flee the temptations when they come because they won't still have that power, that old power that they had over us before because our hearts hallow him. And so pray this prayer. You know that Jesus prayed this prayer? Do you know when he prayed this prayer? When did he say, not my will, but thy will be done? And when did he say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? He prayed this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. In the garden when he sweated blood under the agony of the expectation of losing his father, he prayed this. And on the cross where he was suffering the very loss of his father and the loss of any shred in every aspect of life, when he suffered the full weight of the consequences of our sin and the full weight of all the evil and death that the world has ever known, he prayed this prayer. In the climactic moment of human history, he prayed this prayer for you and for me so that we who believe in him by faith might now pray this prayer with him. And so will you pray it? And will you begin with adoration? One way to begin with adoration is to sing. When we gather this morning, sing. Some of you don't sing. I stand up here. I watch you. You don't sing. Sing. And also, if you're new to prayer and you're new to adoration as prayer, use the Psalms. 
Let them be what it is, the very words that you tell God what you adore about him most. And before long, your heart will have and will hold on to that which your lips have said. So pray. Amen. We pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that the roots of our soul would be sunk deeply into you. We pray that that would happen even this morning as we continue on in worship and as we gather around your altar table. Uh, May our hearts be captivated with who you are and all that you have done for us in and through your son. For we pray in his name. Amen.